Well, God's, God's people today need comfort. And now by comfort, I don't mean a, a message assuring you that everything will be okay and that you have nothing to worry about uh, in life. As far as this life is concerned, there is no such message in the Bible. The Christian life is not a kind of warm bed with a fluffy duvet and soft pillows from which we can hide from the big bad world out there. Perhaps some mornings, Monday morning, you might feel like that. But that's not what the Christian life is like. In fact, for most Christians, life is often pretty hard and full of troubles and uncertainties at various points. No, by comfort, I mean the message of consolation, encouragement, and strength that God gives to those who trust in him, whatever their circumstances. Whether life is good or bad or a bit of both, God speaks to us so that we are consoled and we're encouraged and we're strengthened. And how we need such comfort. Uh, There are a lot of problems in the world, as I'm sure you are all too uh, aware. We're We're all too aware of what's happening in the Middle East at this present time and in the Ukraine and here with all the issues facing our own country. And Not only so, but we live in a world that increasingly feels strange to us as Christians. In our country and throughout Western Europe, the culture has drifted further and further and further away from the Christianity that once shaped it. And what shapes people's lives directly or indirectly is not the Bible and the Christian faith, but rather various forms of secular humanism that has no place for God and for his truth. And the result is a culture that is increasingly alien and hostile to Christianity. And as a result, being a Christian in the sense described in the Bible is unusual and even countercultural. Christians are increasingly immigrants or like immigrants in a, in a, a new country with which they're unfamiliar. Uh, some of us know that literally. I'm an American, as you might pick up originally. I came here a long time ago, 1976, as a student. It was very strange then, not to me, a strange world. Remember orange squash? I don't know if anyone gets that today, but the American was utterly surprised by that strange thing, orange squash, or instant coffee. But the, these were things you've, uh, you, know, you had here. And But some of us come from cultures that are even more different than Britain. We come here and we don't feel familiar. We don't feel perhaps we quite belong. And that's how I think as Christians we increasingly feel in this country, in which many of us have been born and have lived in for a long time. Uh, whatever our background, that's increasingly our experience as Christians. It's as if we live here but don't quite belong here. In the Bible's words, we are aliens and strangers on earth. And because we are, we need to know God's comfort, his consolation, his encouragement, his strengthening, so that we can live faithfully wherever we are. But there's another reason we need God's comfort, and that is our personal circumstances. For different points in our lives, things can be hard. You may have a serious illness or lose your job, have children who are difficult, or facing a a difficult marriage, or you have a cause for concern or an uncertain future, or whatever it might be. And often we find that when we pray, it's as if God is not listening. He's far, far away. As Isaiah says later in the passage, we feel as if God has forgotten our cause. He's not really there, he's not really listening, he's not really concerned with what's going on in our lives. We trust in God, but sometimes our faith is so stretched, it almost seems it's going to snap. 
And while non-Christians turn to various things for comfort, good and bad, we cling to the promises of God, but a God who sometimes seems very far away. Well, it's in such circumstances that we need God's comfort. And that's what we're offered to us, is offered to us in the passage that we're looking at uh, uh, this morning. Isaiah writes uh, the second part of his book, chapters 40 to 66, for God's people living in exile in a strange place. When Isaiah wrote these words, the exile was still some time, a long time, into a couple hundred years in the future. But inspired by the Spirit, he sees it coming. And he foresaw how God's judgment would fall on the people of Judah for the rebellion against him, and that they would be expelled from the promised land and sent into exile in Babylon. But through his servant Isaiah, God does not chastise his exiled people, telling them, you know, I told you so. You know, you, you brought it on yourselves. He doesn't say that to them. Rather, he says to them, comfort, comfort my people, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people. And like, the, like Israel in exile in Babylon, we need God's, as God's people today, to hear his words of comfort. Of course, our circumstances are very different, but our need is fundamentally uh, the same. Living in our exile in a strange world often, and often facing hard and difficult times, we need God's comfort. We need his consolation, his encouragement, and his strengthening. And so for verses 1 to 11, I would like you to note four sources of comfort for us as Christians. And the first is, the first is this, the comfort of God's forgiveness. The comfort of God's forgiveness, verses 1 and 2. Exiled in Babylon, the Jews were overwhelmed by the guilt of their sin. They knew that they deserved God's punishment for their rebellion against them. So in order to comfort them, God tells Isaiah to to convey or to preach his word to his people. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service or her warfare has been completed that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Isaiah is to speak tenderly or literally to the heart of the people, to the heart of the people. At the center of their lives, the source of their thinking, their feelings, their, their will, they are to hear the word of God that brings them comfort. And tenderly and yet with boldness and confidence, the comforting word of God is to come to the people. And what are they to hear? What is this comforting message they are to get? Well, firstly, he's to tell them the good news that their hard service has been completed. Literally, as you have it in the ESV, their, their warfare is over. The hardship and distress the people had suffered because of their sinful disobedience is at an end. And why? Because the sin of the people has been paid for. How so? Who had paid for the sin of the people? Have the people themselves had their suffering atoned for their sins? Well, great as their suffering was it, it, and would be, it could not atone for sin. Indeed, nothing that a mere human can, <clears throat> can do, however good, however amazing, can atone for sin. No another had to suffer. And that another, Isaiah would reveal to be a, a suffering servant who would pay the price of sin by his sacrificial death. Just turn over a few pages to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. 
And just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Down to verse 4, chapter 53, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Because of what that servant would do at some point in the future, the believing Jewish exiles in Babylon would be forgiven. Not only forgiven, but forgiven abundantly. From the the Lord's hand, Israel had received double for all her sins. Sin would be truly punished so that there would be forgiveness in all its abundance. What good news this was for God's people. In Babylon, what comfort these words would have brought them into distress. It would have been like a, a cool, refreshing tonic on a hot day. You know what it's like? You're out working or doing some sport on a hot day and you want nothing more, a nice cold drink. And this is what these words would have been to Israel in its exile. For Isaiah's words are just tell them that God's going to bring them forgiveness. But good news as it was for them, it's even better news for us. For Isaiah's words point us to the forgiveness that we have from God on the basis of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is because of his death so clearly foretold in Isaiah 53 that we are forgiven when we trust in Jesus. Again, those words from Isaiah 53, uh, verse, verse 4. Let's put Jesus into those words. Surely Jesus took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we consider Jesus punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Jesus. And by the wounds of Jesus we are healed. We all like sheep of God. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. And when we trust in Jesus, our hard service because of sin... Our warfare is completed. No longer do we live under the harsh tyranny of sin and the harsh tyranny of death, the harsh tyranny of the devil. Because Jesus atoned for our sins and paid its debt, we are forgiven and set free. And not only forgiven, but abundantly forgiven. The good news is our, is our comfort in life, in comfort in life and death is that Jesus died for us and our sins are forgiven. Is that your comfort this morning? Is that the comfort you know? Are you, or are you turning to the comforts of this world? Relationship, sex or drugs or work or art or great cause or whatever it might be. Turning to something other in this world. Bad things, sometimes good things, but not God things. Or are you finding your comfort in life and death? in the forgiveness that God gives you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Have your sins been forgiven? Well, if not, then take hold of God's forgiveness by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ offered to you in the gospel that tells you of his his death at Calvary. The comfort of, of 
God's forgiveness. But secondly, let's consider the comfort of God's glory. The comfort of God's glory in verses 3 to 5. Comforting as the good news of God's forgiveness is for his people. There's another source of, uh, another source of uh, comfort. Listen, look at verse, uh, verse 3. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, whose voice we're, is, we're hearing here, we're not told, but it will become clear in due time. And the voice tells people to prepare the way for God's coming by making a way for him in the wilderness. They're way off in Babylon. Make a way for God to come so you go back to where God wants you to be. And the way must be straight and clear so that God can come directly and without hindrance. So there's a lot of work to uh, be done. Look at, and, and look at verse 4. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain shall be made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. There has to be a lot of leveling up. You know, there's all this controversy about HS2 right now. All sorts of things flattened out and, you know, hills gone, knocked down and everything else. And that's just Britain with, you know, it's rolling countryside. But here's, you know, the, the, God's way has to be prepared. There's a lot to do. In our terms, it, it, it's, a, it's a motorway, a superhighway that has to be built. And when it's completed, God himself will come and reveal his glory, verse 5. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. And the, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God will reveal his attributes and his character as God, his glory. And this revelation of the glory of God will not only be for the people of Israel, but also for the whole of mankind. And because God said it would happen, it will happen. Now, what's all this about? We need to understand that Isaiah is speaking figuratively here. He's not asking the Jews in Babylon to literally build a highway from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Rather, they are to prepare their hearts for the coming of God to deliver them from their exile. And in some measure, that's what would happen under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah when some of the Jewish exiles returned from Babylon and uh, from its empire, returned to Jerusalem, and the temple was rebuilt and the walls were rebuilt around the city. But it's not. But it's only in the light of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that we can fully understand what Isaiah is saying. You see, Jesus is the Lord whose way was prepared by John the Baptist. Turn over to uh, Luke, the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter th- uh, 3. Listen to what Luke says. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Etruria, and Traconicus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Ananias and Sapphira. So Luke wants us to get our history, fix this in history, in time. This is not just some sort of airy-fairy thing. This is rooted in history. The word of, the Lord, of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, <coughs> 
A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain shall be made low. The crooked roads shall become plain. The rough ways made smooth. And all God's people will see God's salvation. At the heart of John's preaching was the call to repentance and faith. And that's how the way of the Lord was to be prepared. And when Jesus came, the glory of the God was revealed for all mankind to see. The Apostle John speaks of how the word who was in the beginning and who was with God and who is God became flesh, became flesh and made his dwelling among us so that we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from father, full of grace and truth. And the Apostle Paul speaks of the gospel displaying the glory of Christ who is the image of God and how by his supernatural grace he has been given, that we have been given the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. And the Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. What a comfort that is to God's people. In Jesus Christ, God reveals his glory in order to save us, to deliver us. God didn't send an angel, but he came himself to save us. And he did so in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus. And in that way, the glory of God was revealed not only to Israel, but to all the world to see. That's why we're here today, people from all nations. Some of us may be Jewish, but most of us are Gentiles from different nations around the world. The glory of God has appeared for all to see. So today, everyone can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And seeing him, we repent and believe in him for our salvation. And again, I ask you, have you done that? What a comfort it is to know God as he has revealed himself in the Lord Jesus. He's not a distant God way out there. That's what Muslims believe. No, we have a God who's come to us, into this world, and the grit and the just the filth and the ordinariness and the you know sweat and everything else of this world to identify with us, to be with us and to go to the cross to redeem us from our sins. And it's this God who's come to us in Jesus that we have eternal life. That's what Jesus said in his great high priestly prayer. He's about to go to the cross. And listen to what he says. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. You have granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the one, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Whatever happens in life, that is the comfort we have. That we can know God in Jesus Christ and in knowing him have eternal life. I'm sure you know the Heidelberg Catechism. There's just this comfort so beautifully, doesn't, doesn't it? Because of who Jesus is. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Not a mere man, but God in our human flesh. 
Therefore, he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. And because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. The comfort of God's glory. But then thirdly, the comfort of God's word. The comfort of God's word, verses 6 to 8. One of the challenges of living as God's people in this world is it seems so permanent. Uh, for the Jews living in Babylon, the power and wealth from the culture of the Babylonians must have seemed very permanent. Just look at the buildings. They must have walked around. You go to the British Museum, you can see sort of remnants of that. You know, parts of the gates of Ishtar on, on, uh, at Babylon. And of course, there are famous um, hanging gardens of Babylon. All these magnificent buildings must have been so amazingly impressive to the Jews. And it's, uh, Babylon's empire and its political and military power must have seemed absolutely uh, permanent. So what were God's promises in comparison to that? Well, through Isaiah, God tells his people that what is permanent in Babylon is not Babylon and its culture, but God and his word. And verse 6, a voice cries, cry out, what shall I cry? All people are like grass. All its faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the breath of the Lord blows over them. Surely the people are, are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Human beings, even at their best, are transient and perishable like grass and flowers withering in the hot wind. But the word of God, his revelation in scripture, can be relied on because it is eternal. Verse 8. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. And my friends, this is the perspective with which we need to look at life and look at this world in which we live. Human beings are mortal and, and therefore transient and perishable. The richest and most powerful and the most famous, the most intelligent people will die like everyone else. And with them dies their glory. You can't take it, no one can take it with them. How foolish then to trust what is perishable and transient, and yet sadly that's what so many people do. No, my friends, the only thing we can build our lives upon, the only sure thing, is upon God and the word that he speaks. And because God is eternal, his word is eternal. And it is this word that tells us how we can know God and have eternal life. And this is what we must hold on to. The Apostle Peter makes this point. 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 23. He says, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for one another, love each other deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. So if we've heard this word preached, we've believed this word. This is the foundation. This is the thing we have to hold on to when everything else perishes, everything else disappears. Like a flower, like the flowers, just the breath breath of the wind blows on them no more. But we have something solid. We have something eternal. 
So I ask you, what are you building your life upon? Is, your jo- is it your job or your financial planning for the future, that pension you might be saving up for, or your, uh, relationships that you have, or uh, your health or whatever it might be? Now, there's nothing wrong with these things in, 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 in themselves. We should plan for the future. We should have good relationships and so on. But we don't want to make idols out of these things. No, but and even at their best, these things are transient and perishable. No, the only sure foundation for life in this world and the next is the word of God. So, my friends, treasure this word. Find Christ in this word. Let the word, this word shape your life. When everything else is give, gives way, let the word, this word, be the rock upon which you, you're, you're standing. And this is the rock that will endure forever, as Isaiah says. And that's why we need to, to be deep in the Bible by meditating upon it daily and regularly hearing it preached and taught as you are in, in this church. And like honey, we must delight in the word so that, that, so that we take it into our souls and are nourished by God's transforming grace. So it's not just a matter of having a lot of information. It's letting that word transform us from within so we're delighting in the word and, and we're building our lives on a sure foundation. That brings us to the fourth and final comfort. And that's the comfort of God himself. The comfort of God himself, verses 9 to 11. Underlying all that we have been thinking about, the comfort of God's forgiveness and the comfort of his glory and the comfort of his word is God himself. The good news that Zion or the people of God are to hear and to broadcast in their exile is about God. Look at verse 9. You who bring good news to Zion, lift up your, lift, go up and high in a mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, <coughs> lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Or behold your God. The good news is not to be whispered to people in a little corner somewhere, but proclaimed on a high mountain with a loud voice. For everyone to hear, behold your God, see your God, here is your God. What people need to hear is a message about God, who alone is God, and as such is the creator of all things and the redeemer of his people. And for that reason, they, they need not fear, but rather can trust him to save them. And in the fullness of what... God has revealed of himself in the Bible. We know that this one God spoken that we read of here in Isaiah is the triune God. He's triune in his being, three-personed in his being. He is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he is the God we are to behold by faith and to worship with wonder, love, and praise. Well, my friends, how the, the church today needs to hear aloud and clear the good news about God. Uh, sadly, so much of the passes for Christianity is in, in, in this world, in our own country, is so often man-centered, not God-centered. It's primarily also often what we do and what who we are, or how we benefit in some way from being Christians. Uh, and that's reflected in so much sometimes of the preaching you can hear, the music you can hear online or elsewhere, sometimes in pastoral counseling. Of course, there are great benefits to being Christians. Don't get me wrong. Massive, huge benefits. And it's right to preach about these benefits. It's right to sing about these benefits. 
But in our preaching and our singing and everything else we do, God must be at the center. Before it is about us, the gospel is about God and who he is and what he has done in saving us to bring glory to himself. And therefore, the instruction in every sermon, in every song, in every uh, talk, in every pastoral conversation, every Sunday school lesson, and more, must be, behold your God. See your God. Here is your God. And when that's the case, the church as a whole and Christians as individuals are oriented in the right direction. We're oriented to God and worshiping him and love, living for him as he desires. I was quite struck recently by the testimony of a woman called Molly Worthen. I don't know if you've heard this. It's online quite a bit. She was a professor at uh, history, the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And uh, she was also a religious journalist. And she was investigating evangelical Christianity. And decided that she was living in the same town as J.D. Greer, who recently was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. There's a big church called Summit Church, big church in that part of the world. She would interview him. But as she was interviewing, she realized that what J.D. Greer was doing was witnessing to her. And um, and uh, she um, had been brought a very totally secular, non-Christian background. And over time, she was sort of, they kept meeting. And then uh, J.D. Greer brought Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller, in on the conversation by Zoom to, as well. And... Um, and she was dealing with all her issues, and eventually she comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And she said when she was a non-Christian, she, the sort of Christian, the, she said, she, if I ever become a Christian, I want to have, be a really high church Christian. I want to have all the high liturgy and that and stuff. Uh, but she said, she realized that when, as she, when she became a Christian, that what she really liked was just the music and the, you know, the setting and, and so on. But she says that when she went to church for the fir- first time, this church in North Carolina, what she it struck her was it was so God-centered. The hymns were about God. So it just drove you straight to God, and the preaching got you straight to God. With so that that was, and she said she'd never experienced anything like that. Now it struck me that is what church should be. That just you know whatever the style of worship, how big or small, we're focused on God. And someone like Molly Worthen, coming from a totally non-Christian background, if I run to Russell Brand, if he came in, he'd be struck. By God. That would be the thing that struck them here at London City Presbyterian or my church at East London Tabernacle or any church. Here is God. Our hymns, our songs. And I, I think that's the case. You know, your hymns and songs, just do that. But we need to make sure that's always the focus. I mean, you're familiar, aren't you, uh, with the short of catechism, you know, and it says our purpose in life as Christians is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that should be what our church that's what should hit the non-Christian. So as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, when an unbeliever comes in and hears the word, he'll fall down and say, God is among you. It's all about God. And that begins when we hear this, these, this good news. Here is your God. But what is it about God that is such good news that we need to hear? Well, to answer that question, you need all that God reveals about himself in the Bible. But here in verses 10 and 11, two things are mentioned. The first is this, God is a powerful king. God is a powerful king. Look at verse 10. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. God is a sovereign Lord. That is, he's Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, who comes as a king with power to save his people. Now, in the Old Testament, there were many examples of God exercising his power to save his people, the most notable one, of course, is God's deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt in the Exodus. But the greatest demonstration of God's power to save his people 
is the death and the resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. On the cross, God powerfully saved his people by defeating sin, death, and the devil by the death of his son. And in the resurrection, God has raised his son to life in power. And in his ascension, he's exalted him to his right hand in power. And now he reigns over all things in power. And now that salvation is being, that Jesus is one, is applied in power to those who respond to God's call in the gospel with repentance and faith. The gospel is indeed, in Paul's words, the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. But in coming to save his people as a powerful king, God also establishes his rule. In the Bible, the arm is a picture of strength. So when God rules with a mighty arm, as we read in Isaiah, it means that God is a powerful king. And the Bible is a story of how God has been powerfully establishing his kingdom since the day Adam and Eve fell in the garden. But it was in the death and the resurrection of Jesus that the kingdom came with power as sin and death and the devil were defeated. Now Jesus reigns as the King of kings and the Lord of lords at the right hand of his Father. All authority in heaven and earth have been given to our Lord Jesus Christ by his Father to rule over all things between his ascension and his return. And today, therefore, God rules with a mighty arm by the Lord Jesus as his kingdom grows through the prayer Back, spirit-anointed preaching of the word, whether in the way I'm doing it right now or through our personal witness to people at work or in our homes or through a Bible study or a conversation or whatever it might be, the kingdom advances, and often in the face of fierce resistance and opposition and great suffering and cost. But the gospel advances because God rules with his mighty arm through the Lord Jesus. And his victory, ultimate victory, is sure. For the day will come when the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Oh, my friends, what good news this is, that the sovereign Lord comes with power and rules with a mighty arm. With all the things going on in the world today, that's what we need to know. This is the God is sovereign. He's in control. He's ruling. His kingdom is coming. Our glorious God has power to save and to rule. And you know what the evidence of that is? It's you and me. It's us. It's here. We are, as Isaiah says, his reward that is with him and his recompense that accompanies him. In other words, if you are a Christian, you are God's reward and recompense for his victory over his enemies. We are the fruit of the salvation that God has accomplished by the death and resurrection of his son. What a privilege it is to be a Christian. What greater honor could ever be given anyone? Nothing that King Charles could give. Nothing that any Nobel Prize award committee could give. Or anyone else could give. The greatest honor is that we are God's recompense that accompanies him. We are the reward he receives for the salvation he has accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has won the victory of our salvation. And we are the recompense, the reward, the bounty, if you like, that he receives. And then the second thing we see here is that God is a gentle shepherd. God's a gentle shepherd. Verse 11, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers his lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Amazingly, 
this powerful king is also a gentle shepherd. Our God cares for his people like a shepherd tending his flock. Think of how God is described in the 23rd Psalm. Leading his flock to green pastures and beside quiet waters. Guiding them in the right paths as he comforts them with his rod and his staff. And is with them even in the darkest valley. Like a shepherd, God gathers his people like lambs in his great, strong, everlasting arms and carries them close to his heart, no doubt within his cloak to keep them warm. And rather than drive them, he leads them so that the sheep with lambs won't be rushed. How gentle is our powerful God in dealing with each of his people, with each one of us. Indeed, his power is harnessed to his gentle care of us. This is the God that we know in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is, as he describes himself, the good shepherd. John uh, chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. And just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus is this good shepherd. And as a good shepherd, Jesus cares for each of us as his people. He gathers each of us to himself and carries each of us close to his heart. There's an intimacy in our relationship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The sovereign Lord, who is like a powerful king, is also like a gentle shepherd in his love and care for us. What comfort there is in knowing all this. The God who forgives our sins and whose glory is revealed in Jesus, and whose word endures forever, is the God who saves us and rules us and cares for us with his gentle power. And living in the kind of world we do, can there be any greater comfort than knowing that? Do you know this comfort for yourself? Do you know God in this way? It is only by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that you can know this comfort. That nothing, nothing, nothing in all creation can take away from you. Trust in him and hear the voice of God tenderly speaking to his comfort to your heart. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we bow before you. What an amazing God you are. God who is like a mighty warrior powerful and strong, and yet who is like a gentle shepherd. We praise you that we, we have such a God who comforts us with your forgiveness and with your word. We thank you for all that we, we, we have uh, with you, and we, we, we praise you, Father, for that. And that though, though we might sometimes feel that we're, we get, you disregard us, that we've been forgotten, We know that we haven't because your word is sure. Your word is certain. And we pray, Father, you would help us to find comfort in you, our God, to find strength and to find help so that we can indeed, as we read, mount up on wings like eagles. That no matter how weak we feel, how feeble in our prayers and our living, just in our struggles in this world, we will know your strength in our weakness. Your power is made perfect in weakness. May we know that. Be comforted by that. 
that you, our powerful God, gently with us, carrying us like lambs near your heart. And we pray these things in the name of your Son, the Good Shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.